Discover More, Discover More is, a show is a show for independent thinkers by independent thinkers. Welcome to Discover More. My name is Benoit Kim, and I will be providing you with practical mental health insights. I know that I have been on a psychologist and mental health driven concepts in the last couple months because that is highly reflective of my own emotional journey in the past couple months. I have been seeking my own therapy to sort of reveal and go deeper into some of my repressed emotions like abandonment issues and a lot of the anger that I've been harboring uh, throughout my life that I just wasn't aware until recently. That said, here's another amazing psychologist that I think you'll really appreciate her fascinating background in cognitive psychology. This week's guest is Dr. Christine Zimmer. Christine is a cognitive psychologist, tenure professor of psychology at Missouri Western State University, and a psychedelic science educator. Christine got her doctorate in developmental psychology and dedicated the last 10 years teaching her students how our actions and perceived feedback affect our perception in this reality. I came across Christine from the well-known psychedelic newsletter, The Microdose, published by the UC Berkeley Center for the Science of Psychedelics, where she got interviewed for being the first professor in her conservative region to teach psychedelic science, which is highly controversial in many regions. So I figured... Why don't I bring her onto the show to unpack and share some of her wealth of knowledge and expertise with you all. Expect to learn about why psychedelics is considered as a new age religion to many, the power of transpersonal states in psychology, like some of the ancient practices like sauna and fasting and so on, the inner intelligence of our body, how our sensation perception works, Remember that blue dress that broke the internet a few years ago? Normacy bias and much, much more. Please join me and Christine in this week's train of Discover More. Christine, I am very, very excited for today's conversation and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for having me. I'm excited as well. Christine, why are you so passionate and why do you believe in the power and the healing potential that comes with psychedelic medicine? a really dramatic paradigm shift in, in the way we view mental health, also the way that we view our connection to our planet um, and to each other. And I think that psychedelics have the potential to dramatically shift people's thinking in a way that meditation, sleep, self-care, just they're more like long-term evolution, you know? And, and I think for the type of crisis point that it feels like we're reaching with regard to our relationship to the planet, each other, and our own mental health and connection. Psychedelics hold a lot of promise for being uh, being able to shift a, a large enough number of people way of thinking that we've just sort of been stuck in and into a new paradigm, a new way of thinking that could be really beneficial for humans as a whole and individually. So being able to witness that happening and support that, you know, there's different channels that psychedelics are moving through. So there's the medical 
model where, you know, we've got uh, FDA trials for MDMA and psilocybin um, nearing completion of their phase three in the next year or so. We also have uh, recreational movement, um, cannabis sort of starting the way, but uh, decriminalized nature in a lot of cities that are just moving to change the laws around plant medicines or psychedelics um, to make it you know, less of, less risky for us to explore consciousness in this way. Um, and then we have the uh, religious movement too, where, you know, this was something that I, I think Tim Leary and a few people in the 60s tried to, you know, create a church of LSD. Um, but, you know, there are ayahuasca churches that have legal ability to use ayahuasca in the United States. Um, and of course, uh, Native American cultures with peyote. Um, and I, at one of the recent conferences, um, I think it was Horizons in New York, they were talking about this Supreme Court that we have is very religiously focused, and that could actually be a really interesting um, case for building a religion around psychedelic use, um, because based on the precedent this court is setting, if that gets to the level of the Supreme Court, they've pretty much set this precedent that they would have to honor that type of religious freedom, right? So sort of the silver lining of the court stuff we're dealing with right now is that <laughs> potentially there's this third way that psychedelics are infiltrating our culture it could be through um, sort of a religious exemption idea. And I think for people that are really into psychedelics, they do hold kind of a religious status um, because they do create this direct connection to a, a sense of the divine or a unitary consciousness. And they, you know, are a sacrament to a lot of people. They're taken with you know, reverence. So I think, you know, in all these different ways, the medical, the recreational and the religious, uh, I see them coming in <laughs> to the culture and potentially having some really positive shifts. Um, on the same note, that's why I'm really passionate about education reduction is because they are so powerful. What we saw happen in the 60s, where it was sort of unleashed um, without a lot of knowledge or education. I don't think we can put the lid back on the box. I think psychedelics are are coming into the culture in a major way again. And so I, for my role in that, I see just wanting to educate, wanting to um, give people resources for how they work, how they can be optimally used, um, how to avoid some of the fear and paranoia and negative things that might come out of using these really powerful substances or being around them in our culture. So let's go down the psychedelic realm, but through the lens of transpersonal psychology, Christine. As we both know, there are still a lot of muddy waters and unknown in psychedelics, but what we do know is the mechanism for a work. We don't know what causes this mechanism or this catalyzing experience, so to speak. We don't know what causes it, but we know as long as there is a catalyzing experience, the magic happens. And I think transpersonal state contributes to this mechanism, this healing mechanism that psychedelic works through us. And I know you're one of your subjects and expertise in transpersonal, transpersonal psychology, and you teach a couple courses as well. So A, can you define what transpersonal psychology is? And B, what is this alternative level of state that so many people crave and are looking for in this experience? Yeah, yeah, great. So transpersonal psychology, um, you know, to break down the word transpersonal, trans means like a bridge across or beyond, and then personal is the self or ego. So it's in one sense, it's experiences that 
go beyond our normal sense of default self and ego experience. So that's why meditation can be a transpersonal experience because we're out of our daily like da 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 da, da and we're just going to a different place beyond. Some, we're shifting into something new. Um, and then also as a, as a bridge, because the transpersonal state can also be really connecting and we're connecting, like I've said before, to ourselves, to our bodies, but also to communities. It can be really like community building to have these types of experiences. Indigenous cultures have done that for, for thousands of years. Um, and also connecting to, to nature, to, to animals, to the planet, to plants. So it encompasses a lot of different types of experiences that um, are just beyond our normal sense of um, everyday default mode. So we as humans are naturally inclined towards these types of experiences. Even a kid just spinning around in circles until they are like super dizzy, you know, they're altering their consciousness. Um, that's why we love, you know, amusement park rides and even swings and merry-go-rounds and stuff like that. But then, you know, as we get older, we start to find, seek out those experiences through maybe alcohol or drugs or sex. Um, but we all are sort of drawn towards shifting our, our consciousness in different ways. It's, it's fun. It's can, you know, shake us up from our, our feelings of being stuck. It can, um, create joy, um, in our life and, I think, you know, we're, we're drawn towards that. Maslow, uh, Abraham Maslow, you know, famous psychologist was uh, one of instrumental in helping start the transpersonal movement, which grew out of um, the humanistic human potential movement. So he was big in that. And he, of course, has that the pyramid, the hierarchy of needs with self-actualization was what it was at the top. And that's what's usually taught in psychology classes, but towards the end of his life, he actually added beyond self-actualization, self-transcendence on the top of the pyramid. Um, so recognizing that these peak experiences and these moments that we actually, it's self-actualization is, you know, living our best life and being our best self, but self-transcendence is just going beyond that to a deeper connection, to a, having a meaningful life and a spiritual life. So in the transpersonal uh, class, we talk about, you know, the normal focus of psychology is this, we say, biopsychosocial approach. We're biological humans, we're social humans, and we have this psychology that we're interested in. But with transpersonal, we're moving towards a biopsychosocial spiritual approach, understanding that a lot of our mental health issues are a lack of connection. And doesn't necessarily mean a religious connection, but a, a leading a meaningful life and feeling like we have community and feeling like we're connected um, really helps to give you that full feeling of of joy, pleasure, satisfying life. Yeah, so those are the types of experiences that we look at. So yeah, meditation, obviously breath work, we can do a lot of changing our consciousness through our breathing, you know, practices like that indigenous cultures have used like fasting or sauna, sweat lodge, um, drumming, uh, drum circles, you know, music, dance, ecstatic dance. Sex is a transpersonal experience that, um, is something that a lot of people have access to, you know, and, and, and practice not necessarily in a, in a spiritual or transpersonal way, but it has the ability to, to be that and to go there. Um, and, and even birth and death, you know, those are things that we don't um, practice daily, but those are two given points in our life that we have this capability for this transcendent experience or um, maybe not even capability, but maybe necessary necessary experience that shifts us out of the uh, normal default sense of self. So near-death experiences as well. There's lots of different ways that we can access this. And so psychedelics are, are unique in that it doesn't take, you know, uh, something to just overcome you um, spontaneously or to build up a long practice. Um, 
you can just have a psychedelic and it can shift you into a very powerful transpersonal place. And I think that's why uh, they've got a lot of focus and they're really driving the field of transpersonal psychology right now because um, it's really nice for our scientific lens to have the ability to reliably create a mystical experience in a person. Um, we, you know, we know if we give you this particular dose of psilocybin that you are going to go to this alternate plane of consciousness. And then we can scientifically look at, you know, what happens there and how can we use that therapeutically. So I think that's where, where psychedelics fit in. It's a really exciting um, part of the whole transpersonal psychology picture. Creative expressions or drawing or healing, whatever that may be, that's also rooted in transpersonal psychology by achieving this flow state or this state of consciousness where time flies by, you blink and you're like, whoa, two hours has passed. That's all transpersonal. Or when someone uh, are working, doing whatever they love for four to six hours, doing research, Excel sheets, and then bam, the workday is over. That's also a transpersonal state that we're talking about. So all of us, literally all of us experience some form and some tier of transpersonal states but psychedelic is an accelerator in that it just forcibly puts you in this crazy realm, so to speak. And based on how you perceive that experience, it can cause a good trip or a bad trip, air quote, even though both trips tell you what you need to work on after the fact. So in our qualitative process, you talked about you love and you like researching or studying the healing ability that comes with our alternative or higher level of consciousness. Can you talk about what do you mean by the heal innate healing potential that comes with transpersonal states or alternative level of consciousness? You know, the physical metaphor is, you know, if you have a cut and you put a Band-Aid on it, the Band-Aid's not healing the cut, your body is healing the cut. So our, our bodies trend towards health and wholeness. We just need to create the right environment for that to happen, right? If we put some stitches in a, in a wound, the, the skin will heal back together in the way that we want it to. Um, so it's recognizing that our bodies are amazing and they have this potential towards, towards wholeness and toward, towards healthiness. And the same thing with our minds. Uh, if we can create the right conditions to uh, allow our minds to heal, they want to heal, right? We want to be happy. Um, but oftentimes the conditions are just not conducive to that. So, you know, we've talked about self-care as being important for that, but the transpersonal experience also can um, shift, shift your mind into um, out of that stuck state and into more, like you said, a flow state or a healing state. Um, and I think that's what a lot of the research on therapeutic psychedelics is, you know, you're using the, the psychedelic within the therapy setting. So you're creating the environment for this transpersonal experience to, to shift your thought patterns in a, in a healthier way. Um, with post-traumatic stress disorder, we're trying to go to the root of what's causing that traumatic stress, what the experience was, and to remap that in our brain to, uh, a healthier way of thinking about it to process it in a different way so we don't get stuck living in that moment and we can move past it. I think, you know, the practices of, of drum circles, of dance, of sweat lodge, um, a lot of times were used in indigenous communities when there was a problem that needed to be solved or to, or to build community, you know, and to bring the community together, which we know psychology is, has shown for a long time that when you have social support and community, 
you tend to have better mental health outcomes as well, because that helps create that resilience and helps us overcome the traumas that we experience when we have that social support. And so um, these transpersonal experiences can help us feel connected in different ways to to our bodies, to each other, to the planet, as I've said, and also help build that sense of community. And so it's it's all about just creating that environment that allows healing to happen and recognizing our own potential for our bodies and our minds to move towards healing when given the right support and environment for that. Being in a non-mediated experiences, right? Because we're talking about mediated experiences like virtual screens, and it's always and like we're never going to have only non-mediated experiences, aka being the nature, being outside in person, exchanging oxytocin, serotonin, hugs. It's too late. The technological front ends, it already has happened. We're always gonna have mediated and unmediated experiences. But I definitely am part of that number because especially with my YouTube expansions, I'm always in front of the screen. I'm doing this three hours, like three times a week, plus research, SEO, marketing. And I, ha- and I live in Los Angeles, the weather is beautiful, but I literally forget I live in SoCal sometimes because I'm, I'm just in my studio corner and I love what I do. It's not yeah. complaints, but I also have to remind myself that, oh, I'm in a mediated experience container. I need to get myself out forcibly, literally go outside, outside that door, which I forget <laughs> to do a lot because I'm just working all the time. And I think that's that's really, really, especially now, right? Especially uh, just globally as a whole, uh, we're dealing with this technological container and we forget that nature is still out there. So your research is on action and perception, perception integrations. And of course, you're a cognitive psychologist. You work on developmental psychologies and cognitive development for the adolescents. Any ideas on this popular saying, right? The saying goes, our perception literally shapes reality. Absolutely. I I teach sensation and perception too, and that's like a big focus of that class, right? Is, um, you know, is your perception the same as my perception? And what what affects your perception? What's created your differences in perception that are different from mine? You know, even something so basic as our perception of a color, you know, people like to talk about, is your red the same as my red? And then we have instances where, you know, there was that dress on the internet that everybody yeah. saw differently <laughs> and that just blew people's minds, but that's like basic sensation perception that they're, what we're we're doing is there's sensations in the environment, which are in the form of um, either chemicals like smells and tastes that are floating around or waves like light waves and sound waves. And then we have these bodies that are um, set up to uh, perceive certain aspects of these sensations in the environment. And the way that we perceive them are different from other species, animals, dogs, bees, plants, you know, would, would have different sense of the world, but then even from human to human, Um, because so much of the perception part, you know, we have the incoming senses, but then the perception part is our brain interpreting that. And we know our brain interprets that based on our previous experience, based on um, our motivation, based on, um, you know, our our brain state at the time, if we're tired, if we're hungry, if we're um, horny, if we're angry, um, that's going to shift the way that our brain interprets the incoming information. And for two people to be in the exact same state is pretty, you know, statistically near impossible. So we're all living in these different, um, slightly different perception worlds. 
um, I think it was in Michael Pollan's book where there somebody had said the idea, if I were to go inside your body and look out through your perception, it would feel like a psychedelic experience. It's so different from my reality that's built up over my 40 years of living um, and my experiences and, and my knowledge and things that I, I understand or don't understand about the world. And so when we're sensing something coming in from the world, we are sensing it through our lens of perception. And so then there's the idea, well, how much conscious control do we have over that, right? A lot of that's unconscious. Um, but there, because it is happening in our brain, there is that element of some conscious control. I can specifically look for something yellow, and then that's going to shift what pops out in my environment. Um, you know, the signs, you know, look for motorcyclists. If you're not looking for them, you don't see them, right? If you check your blind spot and you're just looking for a car, you might miss a cyclist or a motorcyclist or a pedestrian because that's not what you're looking for. So we do have conscious control over what we perceive to a certain extent. And so then can we um, consciously create an environment that more comfortable or more exciting for us? It comes back to that storytelling too. You know, if I'm in a negative headspace and I'm going to perceive somebody's interaction as being negative, that's my perception and that's the story that I'm telling. So if I can consciously catch that, and I think meditation helps you have a little bit of space to catch those thoughts because you're practicing examining the thought as a thought and not just like part of brain that you can't control, just seeing that thought and saying, oh, that's interesting. Um, what if instead of telling myself that this person is mad at me, <laughs> I can say they're really busy and preoccupied and they're thinking about something else, but they really do love me and they appreciate me and they value me. And so I can just shift that storytelling, which is shifting my perception consciously. And that's, you know, then recognizing, well, if I tell myself this negative story, then I feel sad and I feel rejected and, and it's going to make me want to respond in a more negative way. And if I tell myself this other story, then that makes me feel better. So I'm consciously noticing <laughs> the, the, lens of my perception, the stories that I'm creating. And then um, sometimes we have that space to consciously shift that story to create a more peaceful, harmonious environment. I mean, you can run the risk of like being delusional and, <laughs> and telling yourself stories that, oh, I just live in this happy world. Everybody is mad at me, but I'm just like in my world, everybody loves me. <laughs> so I think you can also go extreme with that too. So being honest with yourself and, and with other people. And I, I think especially when it comes to this example I'm giving of relationships with other people, it really comes down to communicating um, because so much of our perceptions of other people are our guesses at what's going on. And so if I can say, hey, are you, I'm, I'm sensing that maybe you're feeling um, mad at me or like uh, upset with me. Is that how you're feeling or is that just in my mind? Because everybody's got their own little worlds of perception, um, like you said, a human's main skill is our language and we can use that to communicate and try to share an understanding as best we can of what's going on in, in your head and my head. It's a very relevant because we live in a very polarizing and triggering, trigger sense of society for a lot of people, right? And a lot of that isn't the individual's fault per se, it's just they're deeply unaware of their triggering tendencies like what what ticks them off what makes them happy what makes them sad because by blocking out your pathways to joy or anger you're also equally blocking out the other pathway to sadness other emotions like if you're blocking out negative emotions you're also blocking out positive emotions 
And these are all knowledge that psychology, psychology talk about. Uh, I share that because I, I fall into the category of I like to personalize a lot via text because you can't really understand the tonality or sarcasm or like most of my fights uh, with my family or my partner is from via text because I misinterpreted it. And then I just operate based on this assumption, the missing gap. How we interpret any communication, if it's written, right? If it's not verbal, that you don't have the opportunity to observe the other person's body language, mannerism, maybe are they smiling, right? What's the proximity? If we don't have that, how we interpret that text is the reflections of how we feel at that very moment, always. And it's the projections of how we feel rather than the uh, projections from the other person. But you won't be able to realize this if you don't have this metacognitive ability to check yourself in real time. And that's why there's so many fights, so many misunderstandings, so many marriage and relationships break because people are running on weeks, months, and even years based on false assumed context because you never checked in or conf- And that's crazy to me, right? And just think about that, like how many potential married couples with years ahead of their marriage lifespan, they cut it short by decades because they're running on assumptions. And because as you said, our perceptions don't only shape the reality we reside within, but everyone else who reside in that reality, it also shapes. Yeah. And our relationships. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, it's pretty crazy, but yeah. So I want to uh, talk a little bit more about the, uh, in terms of like normacy biases, right? That's a topic of course that you know very much about. And that's sort of the topic you talked about when you spot a yellow, no, you see nothing but yellow. When you buy a Prius or a certain car, you see that cars everywhere, every corner. Uh, so I want to talk about that a little quick because perception is predicated on normacy bias or normacy bias is predicated on perceptions. Can you talk about what it is for non-psychology uh, non folks and like how prevalent that is in our day-to-day? Yeah, so there's our, our brain has a lot of incoming information through our sensory receptors and it's too much to process everything all the time. We would just be overwhelmed. Um, I think, you know, that's part of what babies' brains are doing is they've got all this sensory information and they have to sort out like what's relevant and what can I be ignored. By the time we're an adult, we are very adept at focusing on the things that are relevant and for our goals and ignoring a lot of the rest of that. And so you notice that, like you said, that great example of you are, you know, looking for a new car, you buy a new car, you're thinking about that particular one, then all of a sudden they're popping out everywhere, you know, um, and it, they were always there. <laughs> they were always around you, but you weren't noticing them because that wasn't your focus. And so, like I said, a lot of that's unconsciously created and uh, is driven by deeper goals and motivations than we may have, you know, direct access to understanding. Um, but then some of it, we can consciously look for and motivate depending on um, just shifting our goals. There's, um, I don't know if this comes from Buddhism, but there's this phrase, what you're, whatever your um, attention is on will grow. So thinking about that uh, in lots of aspects of, of life, you know, if I'm, if I'm focused on something, there's going to become more of that in my life. So am I focused on something negative like a fight um, or negative interactions, uh, or am I trying to focus on more positive things that I want to have growing in my life? So I think that can come down to just basic sort of sensation and perception too, right? Because it's not necessarily that it is is growing, but you're you're taking in more of it because you're telling your brain like that's important. Um, and some of that, like I said, we don't totally have control over what things our brain is going to focus on. But to tie that back into psychedelics, you know, Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception, he noticed that 
our normal perception is this little trickle of information, right? Because we're focused on our goals, so we're taking in specific things. And part of what psychedelics does in the brain is, um, to Aldous Huxley's metaphor, throw open the doors of perception. And so we are getting, um, and he got that from Henry Thoreau, right? So it wasn't, you know, he's using that same metaphor. So that we are all, all of a sudden are noticing things that are in our environment that we would have just breezed past and, and not acknowledged because our brain wasn't focused on that. So suddenly I'm looking at the wood grain in my bookshelf and noticing how it's rippling like water. And why did I never see that before? You know, <laughs> Because most of the time my brain is saying the wood grain is not important. I'm looking for a particular book on this shelf. So I think that's a really, psychedelics give us a really interesting window into our own perceptual system and the way that our brain usually takes in information and the ability for that to shift to a conscious or unconscious change. I brought up about normacy bias specifically versus a confirmation bias or groupthink bias because I think normacy bias literally happens every single day. And it also ties into the concept of a hedonistic treadmill, right? Like our in, internal level of, our internal baseline level of satisfaction always increases when you buy a new shining car, buy a new house, promotion, new partner, but then it always goes back to the default level. And the most happiness you feel will be the first initial short-term period when you got that new car, when you got that promotions, and then it goes back to zero. And you just, and our life is literally a cycle of this. The entirety of our life, we'll do it in our 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, and that's what normalcy bias is. When it's so constant, it just becomes our background, a noise or information. So that's why I wanted to highlight that because I think normalcy bias is more and more prevalent with digitalizations of the world, social media, everything, right? Because now our perception is not just real, real world based. It's also digital and virtual perceptions. Yeah, well, how do we move beyond that cycle? Because I think that just feeds into... Um, constant hunger and consumerism, right? It's because it's like, oh, I need a new thing. And then I need a new thing. I need a new relationship. I need a new car. I need a new TV. I need a new, you know, and then we're just, how do, I think for me, meditation and, and these other practices can help just be like, it's, it's enough. Like just appreciate your level and, and the little details of your life instead of needing that fix of something new all the time too. We talked about Psychedelics is magical in many, many ways. And there are risk factors, right? Like if you have heart issues, if you have mental illness history, you should not try psychedelics, period, because it could trigger an offset, your uh, dormant mental illness genes in your family. So there are risk factors. Definitely, it's not a end-all, be-all for sure. But for those who can benefit from the experiences, I think it best reduce cognitive rigidity that everyone has, right? So what is cognitive rigidity and how do you view what I just said? Yeah, I think the research is definitely supporting that too. This idea of cognitive rigidity is we, um, like I was saying, we got all this incoming information. Our brain has to make sense of it and, and quickly, right? So we use these heuristics, we use these shortcuts. Um, and over time, we have you know very well-worn pathways, neural pathways in our brain for incoming information. Um, and most of the time that is, it's there because it benefits us, right? It allows us to respond quickly to a situation I know when I'm driving my car and somebody's merging, I can, you know, if I need to brake or I need to switch lanes, um, I have these well-worn patterns for how to behave in these specific situations. So um, the reason we develop cognitive rigidity is because it allows us to respond adaptively in um, an environment. But sometimes um, those patterns can become not so conducive to our best health and well-being, especially when we're talking about patterns of anxiety and depression or trauma that have 
have these well-worn patterns where I'm just going to resort back to these depressive thoughts um, because that's what's been so reinforced in my brain. So the way that brains make connections is through these neural pathways and the ones that are activated the most get supported and get the nutrients and get stronger and the pathways that aren't being used will atrophy and sometimes even neurons or connections will die. And so that's an evolutionary process our brain goes through from birth or even before birth that is helping us to create a, the most efficient brain for our environment. Our brains are um, set up to evolve to our environment and adapt to our environment in, these, um, in the best way. So if we notice that we're having patterns that are detrimental to our mental health or our well-being, that's something that you might, through therapy or through other practices, try to shift. And that can be really difficult because the metaphor of you know, a sledding hill with well-worn paths, and you try to take a different path, but it's going to kind of pull you into that same path. Or the, thinking about streams and rivers that you know, the water is going to follow the, the well-worn path, and it's very hard to divert from that path. So that's one of the nice things that they've been finding in the research with psychedelics is that it's allowing more pathways to form. It's sort of flattening the, the field, fresh blanket of snow, and you can see what it would feel like to, to try a different pathway. And that's not necessarily going to, to stick once you're out of that experience. That's where the integration comes in and um, saying, all right, well, I felt this new pathway and this new way of thinking. Now, what can I do to really integrate that into my daily experience so that I can um, build up that pathway rather than this other one that was creating more mental distress? So yeah, the way that we can think more openly, think more creatively, um, our brains are operating in a way where it's outside of that normal range of consciousness. And that can happen with psychedelics. It can also happen with some of these other transpersonal experiences because we're beyond this normal default mode. And then, you know, doing the work afterwards to integrate that experience can create some lasting, meaningful change in the way that we think and see the world. Humans are the mammals with the largest brain. So we have some very powerful brains, but we're humans. We're not just monkeys, right? So we do have awareness. We do have the power of choice to reset and rewrite some of these neural pathways because you can create a new path. So just to try to connect and humanize that, that we all are, we all are doing our best and our brains are, are all trying to protect us and make us feel happy and safe. And that comes out in different ways for different people, especially very prevalent with the, with the political world right now and, and the pandemic. There is the idea that education is liberation. I also, whether it's psychoeducation or just education, I believe education is the ultimate form of liberation. So I want to connect that thought as we're coming towards the end of the episode with your other deep passion of harm reductions and appropriate and honest drug education. So feel free to connect the two dots, but why do you think education is the ultimate liberation that we need? Yeah, I think uh, education is really important. I mean, I've dedicated my life to that being a professor for psychology, especially understanding the ways that our mind works and a lot of the things that we've touched on today. Um, what things do you have conscious control over? How can you shift, um, make micro shifts in your thought patterns or your behaviors that lead to bigger changes, um, more lasting changes, more meaningful changes overall, um, these little changes built up over time, things like meditation practice or even just sort of being aware of your thought patterns and, and what you're focused on over time can lead to you know, monumental outcomes. 
So I think just just knowing that and gives you the power to explore that more and play with that more and uh, shift that within yourself. And then when it comes to psychedelics and, and drugs in general, I think there's a lot of unknown. There's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of propaganda. There's a lot of fear. And as we've been talking about coming to this so-called psychedelic renaissance or just a refocus um, within our culture and society on the healing and um, magical potentials of, of these substances, there's a tendency to get really overzealous about that. And like you said, it's, it's a cure-all for everything. Everybody should take it. We should put it in the water. Everybody needs to get on with experience. And I think that's going too far, right? You know, as, as you've already mentioned, there's there's actual health concerns for some people, um, especially for uh, schizophrenic tendencies or, or um, genetic factors. It can be um, overwhelming and triggering for that. Um, so there's some real precautions there for us to um, incorporate these into our culture safely. But beyond just the, the medical concerns, understanding how they work um, to the sense of, of how powerful they are, what sort of things influence your experience can help us to have uh, more meaningful, more um, satisfying uh, growth experiences rather than, you know, really scary, traumatic growth experiences, because they can cause trauma too, especially if you're unprepared or in an environment where you're not safe. Uh, hoping to work with Zendo at some point, which is the harm reduction wing of MAPS, um, and they go to festivals and help people who are uh, on psychedelics having a difficult experience. Because recognizing that, like with meditation, stuff can come to the surface with psychedelics in a very similar way, things that you've been pushing down or um, not focused on not or trying to ignore can sometimes come to the surface. So if that happens when you're on a psychedelic substance at a festival, um, usually, you know, you're going to have a, a pretty horrible time. And a couple outcomes might be you go to a med tent and get sedated or you um, get arrested, you know, get involved with the authorities. And to have those types of experiences while on psychedelics are, can definitely be traumatizing. So um, what Zendo and, and other harm reduction um, groups try to do at, at these festival experiences is give an alternative to the med tent where people can come in, um, have some water, have a, a blanket, have a safe space to process whatever it is that com that's coming up um, with people who are going to hold space for that. So we're not therapists. We're not trying to guide them. We're trying to sit with them and create a safe space um, to help them travel through the experience, not bring them down out of the experience, but just to allow the process to unfold in a safe container. Arming everyday people with that kind of information for understanding how these substances work and how we can best support each other through communities of peer support, whether that's at a festival or just in your hometown or with your group of friends, recognizing their power and our ability to hold space and trip sit and um, protect each other through those powerful experiences. And to combat all the propaganda and fear and misinformation that's out there as well when it comes to um, drugs in a, in a wider sense, you know, even talking about beyond psychedelics. Um, we, as you said, we have a really polarized society. And one thing we're really polarized on is this kind of good drug, bad drug dichotomy and this idea that it's the substance that creates the problem, not the interaction between the person and the environment and the substance. And so understanding sort of the, you know, real drug education that I um, try to talk about in the class. So we mostly focus on psychedelics, opening up to ideas of everything can be used um, in an, sort of an abusive or a toxic way or a more healthy way. And we can talk about that with drugs. You could talk about that with 
with caffeine or with sugar or with sex or with social media, you know? And so just looking at all of the relationships that we have and what are all the things that go into those relationships and not trying to demonize the social media or the drug, but look at how, um, you know, the environment is conducive to having a healthy relationship with that or a more chaotic or, or unhealthy relationship. So I think for me, educating about the way the brain works, the mind, sensation and perception, our body embodiment and interaction, and then also understanding how that all connects with different substances that we put in our bodies to change our consciousness in different ways. And arming people with the knowledge and the education to best harness the tools that they have to have more joyful, satisfying, meaningful lives. I'm going to ask you about your recent experimentations and your uh, current journey with uh, polyamory, right? Having multiple uh, partners. I share that because I'm wondering that you you are an endurance athlete. You have a lot of 26 uh, full marathons under your belt. And you talked about you're going through this conscious shift currently or recently, going away from monogamy to having multiple partners because you subscribe to this belief that love isn't scarce and should be uh, shared authentically. As I shared before we hopped in the recording today, that I know quite a few people who are also high level, high caliber, and they are very spiritually heightened. And they also subscribe of this oneness of love. However, none of them were able to uh, successfully complete their journey of being polyamorous uh, for different reasons. But a big, a big collective reason, at least from my understanding, is ego and jealous. And this idea that sharing someone that you love wholeheartedly with someone else, even if they're deeply aware of the role of ego in these situations. So to you, Christine, my question is whether psychedelic played a role or not from your previous years of experience, I'm not sure. But is this decisions and your current adventure and explorations into the polyamorous realm, how much of that is related to shift of consciousness that we've been talking about throughout this episode? And uh, how do you view the role of ego in this new, uh, I guess, romantic or physical or sexual chapter that you're currently in? I would question, what does it mean to successfully complete your polyamory journey? Because <laughs> I don't know if there's ever like, a, oh, goal, I made it. Um, I think we're all just trying to figure out how to, um, you know, relate with people and form relationships the best way at any given point in time. I have experimented with non-monogamy before and, you know, just in dating multiple people and not necessarily identifying it as polyamory, but just like not having a full commitment to any one person. And then I've also had periods of life where I have been fully monogamous. And I don't know that, uh, for me anyway, that, that one way or the other is, is the right way. I think it just depends on what you as the individual are looking for in relationships at any given point in your life. And I think that definitely shifts and flows and changes uh, along the life cycle. For me, currently being a single parent, um, co-parenting, but not living with um, the child's parent, uh, having um, having the space to connect with people in lots of different ways um, without expecting somebody to be a quote-unquote full picture, you know, I'm not expecting somebody to be uh, my sexual partner and also um, my roommate and also um, my partner that I, I travel with and like have dinner with and conversations with and fulfilling all of these different aspects of my life. I don't really want somebody to come in and be a, another parent with me. I, I've got it. They've got another parent and, and I'm good on that. 
So what I'm looking for right now in this point in my life with romantic connections are just connecting with people in deeper levels. So sometimes that might be sexual, but not all the time. You know, some people that I just really like to go to dinner with and have long conversations with, or maybe go for a walk or maybe hold hands and cuddle, but just meeting people where they are and releasing the expectations of um, them being everything to, to me or me being everything to them. And it sparked some really interesting self-reflection on just, you know, what the uh, social constructs that we've been brought up with and the expectations about what a relationship or what a partner should be. You know, and I think that's where a lot of that ego comes in is that we've been told that, you know, if my partner um, who, who I love and who I maybe have a sexual relationship, if they also love somebody else and have a sexual relationship with somebody else, well, does that threaten my security? Does that threaten our connection? It doesn't necessarily, but there's so much social programming that says it does. So to come to your question, I think what psychedelic and transpersonal psychedelic thinking has done is to make me question social constructs. And instead of just saying, well, that's the way it is, or I feel this way because this this construct of, you know, finite love or, or scarcity, or can I... Can I look at that deeper? Can I deconstruct that? And I don't have all the answers. It's a it's a journey of self-discovery. But the thing that I, I really love about it is that it's helping me to fortify my own self-love. Because I think to be, uh, for me, to be successful in this type of um, fluid connection with people, I have to recognize that I am enough within myself and that I'm not looking for another person to um, make me feel whole or valued. And then also just the ability to um, connect with somebody on whatever level we connect and to connect deeply on that level, but then not expect a connection on, on all other levels. Sometimes when people get into relationships, you try to become what you think the other person wants in a partner. Um, so you might change yourself in some ways and they might be small or they might be big and they might be positive changes or they might be less positive, but you're trying to fit yourself into what you are perceiving the other person is wanting, right? So there's a lot of assumption there. And in this type of relating, it feels more authentic because I'm not trying to change myself to fit them as much. And I recognize that, you know, when my partner goes and spends time with someone else and then comes back to me, it just fortifies this sense of like, oh, they really do enjoy my company. They're not here because I'm their only option or we've like locked this down in a monogamous way. They're here because they want to spend time with me and they have other options and they have other partners, but we're choosing to come together in this moment. That being said, I think there's a lot of really beautiful things that come out of monogamous relationships as well. That sense of trust and bonding and security that can help both partners grow in really, really beautiful ways, which is why I am not opposed to going through periods of monogamy again in my life. I think that that probably will happen, but I'm just trying to stay open to what is currently feeling the best for me and feeling the most authentic expression of self and love. And I've really appreciated the self and societal exploration that this has sparked <laughs> in my thinking. I've heard about a lot of the rationales and reasons behind my friends' approach uh, because I, I, I find this very fascinating and I've been upholding my Christian faith more openly on the show recently. So I might get casted by stones by having this conversation. <laughs> but of course, that's a joke. But what I want to do highlight is I sense a huge threat of detachment, detaching from your expectations, detaching from the instilled societal beliefs 
or norms or con constructs that you talked about. What I mean by that is detach yourself from what your partner wants you to be. Because we exhibit behaviors and we say things that we think they want us to say. That's what you're talking about. And that's the detachment you're speaking from. And you can also apply that in a monogamous, monogamous relationship so that we are individually wholesome. And another partner is also individually wholesome. And now you're just adding a wholesome un onto another level of wholesomeness because like all of us are broken. I've been, I just read, read a book called The Loveology. It's written by a Christian philosopher and pastor. And he talks about the fallacy that when you, under the union of monogamous marriage, let's say, right, for a lot of believers and Christians, they expect life and their quality of life gets magically better because now they're full. And he's like, no, everyone's broken. Everyone's broken, whether you're Christians or not, right? Everyone is truly broken in many levels, spiritually or physically or emotionally. So when two broken people come together, that's double the brokenness. Of course, life's going to get tough. Of course, relationship has ups and downs. It's double the brokenness that we talked about or the author talked about. And I sense that from your story as well is you're making the decisions to come to that space with this person who has other options. And that's a commitment, right? And of course, for myself and other monogamous people, we view commitment as we're picking you above 7 billion other people. And that's a decision. And they're all decisions and they're all commitment. They just look different. I mean, with that being said, I do have to ask another question um, before we, we close the episode is that like, how do you think about the opportunity cost then? Because like, if you truly want to be under the presence, the wholesome presence of another human being that you choose to be your partner concurrently with other partners, like I always think about opportunity cost. If I spend time with you now, I'm not walking outside or I'm not doing X, Y, and Z. When I'm spending my time sexually or non-sexually with another partner, of course, it's consensual. That's the baseline, right? If I love someone else, then I was like, oh, well, why don't I just double down on my time? I can just double down the quality time with this person. Why should I reallocate or disperse my energies and finite of attentions and time with someone else? Like, how do you view that rhetoric? Because that's how I sort of view as the biggest downside. Ego aside, if both people with the right intentions, with the right cultivated um, awareness, I'm sure you can do it beautifully. Um, so it's not the ego, but I'm talking about, I feel like this opportunity cost is still a factor. Yeah, that's something that, that comes up a lot because, uh, you know, if you even if you believe love is infinite, time is not, right? <laughs> so, so if you have multiple people that you're trying to schedule time with and cultivate connections and relationships with, then yeah, you are going to have to make some choices. And um, sometimes that can cut into your amount of time to get to spend with somebody that you care about or your amount of time for yourself and your self-care that we've been going on about how important that is. So that is always part of the consideration um, in this type of thing. And I think even with, with any type of relationship, monogamous or not, like you are choosing, you know, how much time you're spending with your partner versus your friends versus your work versus your sleep versus yourself. So I think that plays in in a very similar way for me. And I think this is, again, probably true for all relationships. Communication is really important. So, you know, it, it, recently I felt like um, one of my partners was spending more time with another partner than me. And I was feeling, you know, like I wanted more of their time um, instead of just getting in my head and feeling sad about it, you know, reaching out and saying, hey, this is this is how I'm feeling. And then that person validate, you know, says, oh, I yeah, I miss you, too. And and then I feel like that satisfaction of, of, of we just have communicated that and we understand like we're both really busy right now, but 
we still care and there's still that connection. So it's really forces a lot of uh, communication and sometimes really uncomfortable communication too, especially if you're talking about, you know, um, being open sexually with multiple partners. Like you really need to be communicative about, you know, what types of protection, what types of risks, what types of other situations are going on that you're introducing into your ecosystem. (laughs) So it's definitely been a lesson in becoming more comfortable um, in having um, sometimes really serious conversations about that sort of thing with with people. But that's the other thing I like about it too, is it's a challenge um, to really say what I'm feeling and really ask for what I want and and be really authentic with um, how I'm relating to people. I think, you know, talking about cost benefit, the ability to feel comfortable expressing connection, romance, attraction with different people that I encounter and not feeling like I'm betraying somebody by that, you know? So it, I, I had a, a friend come visit who I've known for a long time and we um, were able to cuddle and, and spend time together. And I knew that, you know, my, my other partner's not going to be mad at me for that or, or it wasn't a betrayal. It was just, we were feeling connected in the moment. And so we were able to connect in that way. And that's been the real benefit speaking of the kind of cost benefit analysis of relationships for me is, is not feeling limited in how I can express love with the different people that I care about in my life. And that being said, you know, I I fully support monogamy. I think that's a really beautiful thing too. And um, I feel like there have been time times in my life where that has definitely been the most wholesome, healthy thing for me at that time. So it's an ebb and flow. <laughs> yeah, I really love these esoteric stuff. And I feel like uh, having someone like you, right, who's a professor, who's a cognitive psychologist, who's very grounded, but also who share these spiritual esoteric, mm-hmm. air quote, hippie, hippie side. <laughs> but you're not a hippie because you because I view hippies as the people who uh, their planes took off to the ethers, but the plane never like the plane departed, but it never landed because they only focus on the being aspect, but they forgot the human because that's a meat suit. We still need the meat suit uh, because they're amazing people. Every hippies I know, they're so profoundly loving. They really are. I love them, but they're definitely floating the ethers. Um, so I feel like having someone like you. A grounded hippie. That's what I am. Then. <laughs> yeah, grounded, hi- grounded hippie. Uh, me and my partner, we aspire to be part-time hippies. Not, yeah. not full-time, but part-time. Okay. Um, <laughs> But yeah, that's why I feel like storytelling is important because mm-hmm. finding people like you representing all these different seemingly diverging but intersectionally fitting contexts and identities, I think, give picture that life is not linear and there are so many things we can do with this given time. And it depends on your intentions and what you want to do with that lifeline, a lifespan. From my research, it appears that you're social media dark, Christine, but this is why I roll out the red carpet for you. Um, I will, of course, include your email and your faculty website and um, the microdose article in the episode links. But where else can people connect with you? Maybe to ask you more about the meditation pilot study that you started or any other more esoteric nature as your side. They're like, oh, wow, this is the first time I've heard a professor openly talking about being polyamorous. Maybe they have some <laughs> curiosities about that or about your bread and butter, psychedelics, uh, psychedelic science, anything in between. Where can people connect with you further if they want? 
Cool. Yeah, I am pretty much um, Stone Age when it comes to a lot of the social media. I do so. I have a Facebook account and I am active on that, although my Facebook name is my alias Christine Julia Mooncat. I go by Mooncat about as often as I go by Christine, and there are a lot of people in my communities who know me in real life who um, just call me Mooncat. So, yeah, Christine Julia Mooncat on Facebook. Uh, you can come find me there and, and follow my running and fire spinning and psychedelic journey. But I don't have Instagram or LinkedIn or any of that other stuff yet. So email is the other best way at my Missouri Western, which is czemer at missouriwestern.edu. I'm definitely looking to have more interesting conversations about any of these topics. I'm also specifically um, creating a list of other uh, people teaching psychedelics classes um, because I, since the microdose article came out, I have been contacted by a handful of other professors around the country and around the world who are either teaching these types of classes or are interested in it. So I am hoping to organize um, at least a Zoom meetup, but hopefully some in-person conference meetups between psychedelic educators um, at psychedelic conferences coming up in the next, uh, this fall and next summer. So if you are in that category or know somebody, send them my way, send them, tell them to email me um, because I'd love to start building, again, another community, but a network of uh, people who are on the same path so we can learn from each other and help each other and support each other. Amazing. You can maybe also show those professors about the fire spinning or the art of flow, <laughs> maybe uh, uh, offline or off the side. But yeah, it's really cool because obviously the most like uh, frontiers in education like Stanford, Berkeley, all these schools already have psychedelic curriculum set up. And another really exciting thing I'm looking forward is medical school as an entire system in America are going to introduce psychedelic as part of the medical trainings, especially for psychiatry. Because as we said, evidence has already been established. Psychedelic is evidence-based. It is the most efficacious healing substance that we have, period. But of course, there are red tapes and there are risk uh, warning labels. Um, but people can definitely uh, do more research because the whole ethos about this show is that you can do more, discover more about what you are intrigued by from these conversations. Like the therapy, this isn't to discover more space this is just the conversations but the work the integration has to be done within and by the individual afterwards which is my hope for the listeners i definitely learned a lot about you and i'm very excited about the changing of the psychedelic landscape in america and for all the psychedelic educators like myself because that's i'm all, i'm also going to be a clinician educator down the road as well and i also would love to contribute my effort um, but for you and all the other people uh, what would you say you're greatest hope and do you have any uh departing messages for the listeners to conclude this episode oh, my greatest hope <laughs> um for for all humans to find peace and joy um for mass mental health and harmony with the planet um and harmony with each other that's my that's my greatest hope that's a big hope but i think you know i feel like the more that we can visualize that and focus on that and act in small ways towards that goal then the more realistic it becomes. I think psychedelics is one tool, but I think there's lots of other ways that we can connect with ourselves, each other, and the planet, and create uh, mass mental health so we can have more moments of joy and, and systemic change to create less um, poverty and racism and some of these issues that contribute to our polarization and lack of connection as well, lack, lack of feeling safe. So I guess <laughs> to listeners, um, on that end, just what ways do you cultivate joy in your life and connection and how can you um, help those to grow within your own life and communities 
Yeah, this is crazy because every single uh, parting message or discover more encouragement from all my guests is pretty very similar. Find joy, find what makes you alive, do the things you love. Uh, but these are the people I seek out. So it makes sense. Yeah. It's very, it's, you know, when it's consistently boring, you know, it's, it's the truth, yeah. <laughs> at least from our uh, lanes of experiences. But yeah. yeah, this was a very, very fun conversation for me. And uh, for the listeners, if you have made it to this end, we really appreciate for your time and energy for hopping on this week's of, uh, train of Discover More with us. And like I said, please reach out to Christine if you have any more additional curiosity additional things you want to talk you through or ask about uh she's very prompt with her email response and she's very generous and a very friendly person as you can tell from this uh, encompassing conversations and with that as always to all the listeners i will link include all the sh- uh, episode notes in the link below and for always discovering more with us this week and as always hope to see you again next time in the next week's week of discover more and thank you for listening